Welcome to International Law Talk of Wolters Kluwer International Group. During a series of podcasts, we'll bring you insightful analysis, commentary, and discussion from thought leaders and experts on current topics in the field of international arbitration, IP law, international tax law, competition law, and other international legal fields. Hello and welcome to International Law Talks brought to you by Clear Arbitration. And this episode is brought to you in conjunction with the Charter Institute of Arbitrators. This is the second in a series that CIARB is sponsoring. And today we're going to discuss the topic of expedited arbitration procedures in international arbitration. We're calling this podcast Value Judgment. Now, this is, as I said, the second in the series, and the first was done a few weeks ago on emergency proceedings. And if you would like any more information on emergency proceedings after having to listen to that excellent podcast with Dr. Krina Baltok and Patricia O'Shaughnessy, then uh, Clear Arbitration Practice Plus has now provided a reference on their page uh, produced by uh, the crew from White and Case of McDougal, Sacha, and Salim. So we encourage you to go check that out if you'd like to find out some more information. But today we're going to focus on expedited arbitration, and I'm very pleased to be able to welcome Professor Dr. Mohammed S. Abdul Wahab. Um, hi, Mohammed. How are you? Hi, Mercy. Delighted to join you today. Well, for those of you who don't know, and uh, probably that's very few people listening to this podcast, but for those of you who don't know, Mohammed is the founding partner and the head of international arbitration, construction and energy groups for Zulfikar and Partners Law Firm. And he's also on the executive committee of the firm. They're located in Cairo in Egypt, where he is also a professor of international arbitration, private international law and English contract law at Cairo University. And among other things, uh, if I were to read out the CV, Muhammad's CV, it would take us, you know, the rest of the podcast. But uh, among our uh, few high highlights, um, I'd like to point out <clears throat> Muhammad was previously the vice president of the ICC court. He's a member of the board uh, for the PCA. And for, um, for us... Uh, for the Chartered Institute, I would particularly like to note and thank you that you for your service as our director of our diploma program in international commercial arbitration. We host this every year at Oxford University, except for the last couple of years, we've moved online. And thank you for your flexibility uh, for jumping right over and, you know, doing the, the course online. I hope that's been a good experience for you. We've certainly appreciated it. It's been a great experience, Mercy, and I'm very grateful for your kind introduction. It's, uh, as I mentioned, it's a pleasure to join you. And uh, certainly, as you say, the diploma experience was very interesting and taking it online was a wholly different level and it was very successful. Now, for those who are listening and, and may not be terribly familiar with expedited arbitration, um, it might sound similar to emergency arbitration, which was the subject of our previous podcast, but it isn't. Uh, can, you, can you explain to us the differences? Sure. Thank you very much, Mercy. Um, now, people really sometimes tend to confuse expedited arbitration and emergency arbitrator proceedings. And let me simplify this by saying the following. Emergency arbitrator proceedings 
uh, deal first and foremost with interim relief that is requested uh, before the tribunal is constituted. So one party has a request for interim provisional uh, relief of any sort, any measure that requires uh, an urgent intervention, and the tribunal is not yet constituted. Um, institutions and rules have been put in place uh, to allow a party to request uh, this emergency relief through having uh, a person appointed as an emergency arbitrator uh, within a matter of very few days uh, to look into the matter, hear the parties within a few days and render a decision again within a few days. Emergency arbitrator proceedings deals with uh, urgent requests for interim relief before a tribunal is constituted. Whereas expedited arbitration, it is a fully-fledged arbitration proceeding uh, with a tribunal in place, dealing with all issues, including the merits, and deciding the case with an award in an accelerated manner. So emergency arbitrator deals with urgent relief before the tribunal is constituted, does not deal specifically with the merits, whereas fast track or expedited arbitration deals with everything in the arbitration, including the merits and renders an award. So an expedited arbitration is a whole complete arbitration process. Yes. Now, this this type of arbitration process um, recently has has gotten a lot of attention as uh, as some sort of new kind of mechanism that we can we can all attempt to 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 save time and costs. But that's not really a, really an accurate view, is it? I mean, there's this kind of this idea that in the past expedited procedures were for sort of primitive topics, um, but that's not exactly correct, is it? Well, that's a very interesting uh, uh, issue that you raise, Mercy, which is whether expedited arbitration is a novelty or an innovation in the field of international mm -hmm. arbitration. Well, certainly the new generation of expedited rules um, are quite uh, uh, a novelty in a way. However, as you kindly say, said, history tells us that that was, uh, well, expedited proceedings or accelerated or fast-track arbitrations have existed uh, long ago, actually. And to many at the time, they were considered very primitive and not befitting of the intricacies and complexities of international arbitration. Let me give you an idea. For example, within the MENA region, um, the earlier version of arbitration um, regulations were included in codes of civil procedures. And within um, these codes, uh, arbitration proceedings in the 50s, 60s, and 70s um, uh, uh, basically uh, included a procedure that would lead to an award within a matter of a month to three months. So we're talking about 30 to 90 days uh, uh, in a sense. And by the way, the traces of this still exist. For example, uh, under Libyan law, uh, the Libyan Code of Civil Procedures, which still regulates arbitration. They have a new draft arbitration bill, but that's not enacted yet. Um, that refers to an award must be rendered in 90 days. And I personally sat in an international arbitration case, an ad hoc one, where we had to render an award in 90 days. Um, and so that's pretty much still in place. And when people looked at these laws, they said, well, that doesn't fit international arbitration and it doesn't work well. 
Um, and now this is being rebranded and packaged as a newfound innovation, uh, championed as something that is very much desired and piloted as very successful. Now, from that point onwards, we've had traces over the past decades. For example, um, on, in terms of cases, we had two uh, uh, interesting cases uh, uh, administered under the ICC, which were expedited well before the ICC had dedicated expedited rules. The, the Panhandle case uh, in 1992, which was a gas pricing renegotiation uh, dispute, an award was actually rendered in two months from the request for arbitration by the agreement of the parties. So even though it was a complex issue regarding gas pricing, the tribunal managed to render an award in two months from the request for arbitration with the agreement of the parties. And the other one, uh, uh, notable case, is the Formula One racing uh, arbitration, which again is a 90, uh, 1992 case, uh, which involved a very fast track arbitration uh, of about a week six days or seven days briefings by the parties, and then the tribunal rendered an award within 48 uh, hours after the end of the parties' briefings of the case. Um, th that was in the 1990s, 1992 precisely. And then we've got the WIPO expedited procedures in 1994. CTEC also had their expedited procedures in 1994, and CTEC is uh, 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 the notable arbitral institution in China. Then we had uh, the Stockholm Chamber of Commerce. They had their expedited rules, a standalone separate rules uh, in 1995. Following that, an interesting development. Uh, of course, people were looking for new developments and new improvements to international arbitration. And in 2015, the Queen Mary University of London conducted on sur a survey on uh, improvements in the field of international arbitration. And quite strikingly, uh, more than 90%, I think it's about 92% of the survey takers um, uh, favored the inclusion of simplified procedure um, for arbitration. Um, and that brings me to a very interesting thing that I see as quite ironic in arbitration. Uh, well, initially, arbitration uh, was put in place as a mechanism for dispute resolution um, to deal with uh, the delays that may have crippled justice systems in many parts of the world and led to delays in court proceedings. Over time, arbitration in itself uh, 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 became quite uh, 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 subject to some delays and lengthy proceedings and has exhibited over time, the same symptoms of the delay illness that it was destined to cure. And so the backlash of that was that conducting the 2015 survey by Queen Mary led to a situation where uh, people reverted back to the original position and said, we want to have more simplified and fast-track proceedings. Now, this has led to a wave of procedural provisions uh, in place, either as a standalone fast-track uh, arbitration rules or integrated within the arbitration rules uh, of certain institutions. It's no longer a novelty. That is true. Whether it is standard practice that is informed by the party's choices mm. and the threshold within which these rules apply. Certainly, we see them more frequently than before because of the existing regulation. 
but still, traditional arbitration proceedings for what is deemed or dubbed to be complex cases continue to coexist alongside fast track. But certainly, it is taking place. Um, I personally participated in a number of fast track proceedings, um, both as, as counsel and as arbitrator. And as counsel, I must say the 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 um, experience was good one. At least it allows us as counsel representing parties to focus on the issues and uh, expedite um, the submissions, saving time and costs, and get to the final stages of the award. Now, of course, you need to have a good tribunal in place that is available and able to render an award within a, um, a, a reasonable time limit subject to the applicable rules. Yes, and let's get to let's get to those thresholds. You mentioned that that's really the key in determining whether or not this this should be uh, considered a a standard uh, option for parties. One of the first thresholds that we you know hear about is value, and and traditionally the benchmark um, for using an expedited arbitration procedure has been this view that it's for low value cases. So, do you think that? Low-value cases, uh, expedited arbitration procedures um, being seen as hand-in-hand is is an oversimplification. What really would be the consideration there for a party? That's also an excellent point, is that in many institutional rules that deal with expedited uh, procedures or proceedings, uh, they deal with that on the basis of value. They think of this as the uh, possibly tangibly assessed criteria that can offer a threshold or a dividing line between what can be expedited and what cannot be expedited. And I think that is fine for a pilot phase of considering expedited proceedings, but I don't see a causation or any correlation, to use your term, hands in hand, uh, with uh, expedited proceedings and the value. I think expedite proceedings can deal with um, high-value arbitrations. Certainly, there are cases, but not all institutions have followed that. And even there is somehow a misconception that expedited arbitration is only suited for low-value claims. It is not. Uh, It has been piloted as such, and there has been success on that front. But certainly, what could be considered a $3 million dollar claim low value in a jurisdiction. In other jurisdictions, that could be a big claim for a company that can go bankrupt if they are hit with such a claim. So in essence, it's a relative concept. But the reality is many institutions, as we've mentioned, have put in a threshold uh, that is value-based. I predict that over time that will be lifted as expedited arbitration gains more and more recognition and momentum. And it will be then a question of uh, whether tribunals and parties are willing to take a leap of faith and subscribe to expedited arbitration and render a decision on a fast track uh, in a fast track context. So until that day comes, and I I tend to agree with you, I think that's that's where we're going. But until that day comes um, for parties who are under an expedited procedure that is uh, an, has an automatic application, but they have a larger value claim, but they still would like to use the expedited procedure. Can they do that? Can they agree together to, to use the expedited procedure, even though 
their claim is uh, above the uh, suggested or prescribed level uh, under a particular institution's rules? Well, a straightforward answer would be absolutely yes. Party autonomy is a fundamental feature of international arbitration. And if the parties wish to opt in or agree to expedited arbitration, develop the rules of the game as they wish, that is perfectly fine. Um, and the tribunal then will need to uphold the party's agreement. Um, and um, all institutional rules provide for that. Now, here institutions differ. There are some who have an opt-in mechanism and others who have an opt-out mechanism. So the opt-in, as I call it, in a way, uh, like the answer trial arbitration, uh, the expedited arbitration rules, it's an opt-in mechanism that is not based on any value. So the parties can agree to the expedited arbitration where the tribunal needs to render the award within six months, subject to an extension of a three more months, or even a further exceptional extension by the agreement of the parties. We will come to that. Um, another opt-in would be SIAC. SIAC does not have uh, the default position where it would apply when the threshold of six million is met. No, it is by the parties' agreement, or if the uh, case does not exceed uh, 6 million Singaporean dollars, or even as per uh, uh, Rule 5 of the SIAC, in case of exceptional urgency, uh, this can also proceed. Um, another example, the HKIAC, Stockholm, Akika, the Asian International Arbitration Center, even ICSID newly proposed amendments um, existing under the uh, working uh, paper number five, they also provide for a possibility of a consent-based expedited arbitration by the agreement of the parties in the context of ISDS. Let me say the following, then I'll elaborate further on that. Due process does not in any way necessitate delay or is not inconsistent with expedited arbitration. The idea with an expedited arbitration is that time is of the essence. And naturally, arbitration... Uh, was actually born and sprung to existence to deal with the delay illness that has crippled some justice systems in certain jurisdictions. So there is no tension between due process and expeditious proceedings or expedited arbitrations. The issue is affording the parties the opportunity to present their case. Now, I realize that people talk of reasonable or full opportunity, but that is always exercised within the reasonable, efficient time frame of the proceedings. So there's really no tension with due process. Now, the suitability and time is of the essence, as you say, of uh, uh, expedited arbitration um, with the uh, uh, type of procedure that the parties have tailored is indeed uh, seen and possible. Um, of course, we have to be realistic. Now, you may have, for example, a fully-fledged construction arbitration dealing with, I keep emphasizing exceptional, so that parties do not think or tribunals do not think that this is something uh, that can be taken lightly and extended. But indeed, uh, it is somewhere between uh, a, a, a couple of weeks up to uh, six or nine months. That's the period within which an expedited arbitration is expected uh, to uh, uh, take place. 
And there are other structural uh, features that parties can use the way the tribunal is selected. A number of considerations are at play with respect to expedite arbitration. First of all, the duration which the, uh, within which an appointment process takes place is reduced compared to a traditional arbitration proceedings. So instead of going about for 30 days or so, it could be within a matter of a couple of weeks, the appointment process is concluded. Um, and the appointment, it de- really depends. If we are in the context of institutional arbitration, institutions would expedite the appointment process. Um, for example, the LCIA, which does not have a specifically dedicated expedited uh, rules but have the power uh, granted to the tribunal to do so, they have within their rules early on, not just in 2020, well before 2020, they have within their rules the opportunity to apply to the LCIA to get an expedited formation of the tribunal, even in a traditional arbitration. Um, Within the context of the ICC, if you proceed in an expedited uh, way, the tribunal will also be constituted in an expeditious manner. And the same thing for other institutions. The idea really is, do we go for a sole arbitrator or a three-member tribunal? And the golden rule is that many institutions uh, adopt the default position that it's a sole arbitrator unless the parties agree otherwise. But even then, um, some institutions, like the ICC, for example, within the rules allow for the possibility that even if the parties require a three-member tribunal to be constituted, the ICC court can override that in light of the specificities of the case to control time and cost and go for a sole arbitrator. Now here, one can speak of, is there a tension here between party autonomy and institutional intervention to the extent that this may affect the enforceability of an arbitral award on the basis that, you know, the party's agreement has been overridden. We have to consider that closely because on the face of it, it may come across that attention does exist and risks uh, do exist. However, when you analyze it, if the parties have agreed, for example, to ICC expedited arbitration or to other institutions expedited arbitration that allows within the rules the institution to override the party's choices about the constitution of the tribunal, then the parties, by their own consent to apply those rules, have given the institution the power to override their agreement. So there is really valid ground to argue that it is the party's agreement that has prevailed ultimately because by their own agreement, the parties have granted the institution the power to override their choices. Now, in terms of how do you go about? Now, you can either have a nomination by the parties, an appointment by the institution, a direct appointment by the institution, or going for a list procedure. And we are familiar with the list procedure, for example, within the context of the ancestral or the new, the newly proposed amendments within the ICSID uh, uh, rules, where Chapter uh, 12 deals with expedited arbitration and refers to a situation of appointing a sole arbitrator or a three-member tribunal uh, with a list procedure in place, uh, a strike-and-rank procedure, which is uh, uh, common in international arbitration. Um, and 
then the parties can also delegate the authority to appoint the sole arbitrator or the three-member tribunal to an appointing authority. And of course, when we talk about appointing authorities, we cannot just uh, not address um, the ancestral expedited arbitration rules, which mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know uh, have been proposed and, and more or less came to light and have been unveiled in 2021 where um, Article 6 refers to designating and appointing authorities. So it refers to uh, the parties having about 15 days to provide their proposal for designating and appointing authority. And uh, then if this has not taken place within that short period of time, then they can request, either party may request the Secretary General of the PCA uh, to designate an appointing authority or to serve as an appointing authority uh, uh, themselves. And in that sense, um, also a party may request in their request for arbitration that the Secretary General serve directly as an appointing authority. And once this is done, the PCA prepares the list and it goes through the list procedure by giving the parties uh, an opportunity uh, to rank uh, proposed candidates. And if no agreement is reached, then the uh, Secretary General would directly appoint uh, or have the designated appointing authority directly appoint the arbitrator. And and the, the default position under the ancestral um, uh, expedited arbitration rules, according to Article 7 thereof, is basically that uh, it is one arbitrator, a sole arbitrator, unless the parties have agreed otherwise. Um, so it's, it's pretty much uh, uh, interesting how the appointment process go about. But I think when we talk about uh, appointing authorities and appointing arbitrators in expedited uh, arbitration proceedings, one important um, point needs to be considered is that all institutions, when they take decisions to appoint arbitrators, availability ranks very high. So it's not just about lack of conflict of interest. Uh, existence of experience and expertise, but availability is key. And that's why we say expedited arbitrations are also uh, a very ripe ground and a green field for introducing uh, new faces into the world of international arbitration, where diversity, global inclusion plays a key role that you can inject into the world of international arbitration Uh, new names, new faces of qualified arbitrators. No one, of course, is willing to compromise on quality, but there are qualified arbitrators who may get a chance to sit in expedited arbitrations when other busy arbitrators are not available, of course, to take on uh, such appointments. So it's one of those areas that offer a myriad of opportunities for a new uh, generation of arbitrators Uh, coming into the system through the door of expedited arbitration. In using these proceedings more um, in helping to increase the diversity in the field, what, in your view, are some of the other benefits, just in a more general sense? We've talked about a lot of the of the uh, considerations that parties would make and some of the mechanisms that are uh, structurally embedded in expedited proceedings. But in a more general view, what are some of the benefits and some of the potential drawbacks for the parties? Uh, what is the value to them overall of using an expedited arbit- arbitration proceeding? Sure. Well, let me say, well, normally time is money. 
So with a reduced time frame proceedings, expedited, fast track or accelerated, whatever you want to call it, uh, this does impact the overall cost of the arbitration. Uh, for example, if you are in within a system uh, or under institutional rules that provide for an hourly-based or time-based uh, hour, uh, fees for arbitrators, then certainly expedited arbitrations may well yield a uh, more cost-efficient and less fees paid uh, to tribunals. Secondly, even if you are in the context of an ad valorem system where the case is judged on the value in dispute, institutions now take into consideration when setting uh, the costs for the arbitration, uh, like the ICC, for example, take on board uh, the time consumed or spent by arbitrators on the case file. So that is an element taken into consideration. Um, but I think more importantly, legal costs, which is really uh, normally uh, uh, the, the big variable within the costs equation uh, of international arbitration. Legal costs uh, in proceedings that take place over years um, focus on the uh, important claims and arguments um, so that uh, 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 mandates uh, uh, more time-efficient uh, uh, allocation uh, when it comes to prosecuting the case. So in that sense, the legal costs will be reduced. We even see, for example, one of the innovations under the newly proposed amendments of the ICSID rules, basically, is that we see uh, under Rule 81... Uh, and people can look into that, for example, on the working paper five of July 2021, whereby uh, the exit has introduced as part of the proposed amendments uh, a cap on the number of pages of the memorials. So for the first round, memorials uh, by either party would not exceed 200 pages and for the second round would not exceed 100 pages. And so in that sense, that also carries with it uh, an impact on costs. So that leads to an overall cost reduction in a way. So when it comes to expedited arbitration, uh, cost reduction is at the forefront of the advantages in that sense. Now, what sort of disadvantages that one can see? Well, that can be considered on a case-by-case -case basis. But I can give you an example, the following. Well, if the parties make a wrong choice as to the expedited nature of arbitration uh, by going or opting for, let's say, a three-month time limit to prosecute a complex case with a multitude of claims and counterclaims, it may not yield a positive outcome to the parties where the tribunal would not be sufficiently or properly briefed on the issues. And so they may not get it right in the award. They may not have been sufficiently briefed by the parties and the council. So it requires really a very high degree of expertise when it comes to expedited arbitration to deal with this. So you would need uh, experienced, good counsel, good tribunal in place for the expedited arbitration to work. And uh, more as of a concern. 
Yeah, yes, and I was just saying you you mentioned the exit proposed procedure, and one of the drawbacks I've I've heard is from the state parties that say in a government uh, in a in a dispute where the, a government party is involved, there are so many layers of bureaucracy that have to be um, complied with. There are so many people that that have to give sign off especially in an ISDS-sized um, claim that perhaps a, uh, an expedited procedure wouldn't be appropriate. Uh, some governments about the unsuitability of expedited proceedings uh, in the context of ISDS. Now, not of course have we seen cases in ISDS prosecuted in an expedited manner, but in fact, the exit proposal and the new amendments have dealt with that as well in Rule 86, where you have an opt-out mechanism where the parties by agreement can opt out. They say, well, this is not working. Uh, we want to opt out. And so they can jointly do that. Now, mm -hmm. of course, you can say that one party may disagree. Then also Rule 86 provides that upon a request for the party, the tribunal may decide that the arbitration is no longer uh, befitting for an expedited procedure, uh, depending on the complexity of the issues or the stage of the proceedings, and then opt out of it. And the answer mm -hmm. trial, by the way, provides for that exceptional possibility as well uh, uh, within their newly proposed rules. So you're absolutely right. It's one of the concerns, mm -hmm. but there are ways uh, to deal with that through an opt-out mechanism. Thank you, Mohammed. This last hour has been very uh, illuminating, and I hope that people listening have not only learned something about expedited arbitration procedures, but also have perhaps considered them in a way where in the past they might have thought, oh, this is just for low value or for certain um, substantive areas, and this isn't really for general practice. Um, I hope we have enlightened some of the listeners and maybe changed their views on this. Um, thank you Merci. again for your time. Uh, it's been a real pleasure. And the discussion we've had, we hope that we have uh, brought to light some of the interesting issues on uh, expedited arbitration. And I was very much, uh, 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 you know, hopeful that we have done that. And I'm very grateful for your insightful contributions uh, and excellent issues that you've raised. Stay informed. Subscribe to this podcast. Visit kluerlaw.com or follow us on social media.